Well, good morning, everyone. It's good to be back with you. The last time I was visiting Grace was uh, just when Pastor Paul was getting started. So that's just about four years ago. And it's, uh, it's just a wonderful privilege to come back. Thanks for the opportunity. I want in the next few moments just to share a little bit of what's going on in the fellowship. Whether you're aware of it or not, your church is part of a, a family of churches. You're part of something that is much larger than yourself. And that's something to be excited about, because God's doing some exciting things. He really is. You're part of an association in this part of uh, the GTA area of fellowship churches, but you're also part of a region called Feb Central, and this region makes up approximately about 277 churches in Ontario. But you're also part of a national body called the Fellowship of Evangelical Baptist Churches in Canada, which is about 507 churches right across the nation, coast to coast. And on any given Sunday, I'm in one of those churches. I do a lot of traveling and get the joy of meeting a lot of great people that are part of this great big family. God's been doing some great things, and I want to encourage you with that and share a little bit about some material that I hope you'll come and pick up after the service. I started this role about nine years ago, and in those nine years, since nine years ago, our movement of churches have planted over 80 brand new churches. That's just not happening in most denominations across Canada. And it's not a competition, but I just only share that with you to encourage you that our churches are seeking to multiply, recognizing the Great Commission is that we are to multiply ourselves, and leaders multiple leaders, disciples make disciples, and churches are supposed to make churches. Our movement's doing it. In the last four years, we're in the fourth of a five-year strategic plan, We've sent out 17 long-term missionaries and 23 what we refer to as mid-term missionaries who are anyone who goes out between two, and two months or two years. That's a record for our churches in its history through our own department, Fellowship International. Paul and Jennifer Sadler, many of you know, were part of the Fellowship International team in Japan for about 15 years before they came and pastored you. Well, so things, uh, our churches are sending out missionaries through their own department, amongst other mission agencies as, as well, of course. We started in a new ministry called FAIR. It was part of a, a department, but we made it into its own department. And fellowship, uh, FAIR stands for Fellowship Aid and International Relief. It's our, it's our humanitarian relief, sustainable development, uh, justice department. And remarkable things are happening there. We have uh, tripled the revenue that is going out into 35 projects in about 19 different countries coming from our churches. Some of that money is coming from you. Helping people at the basic levels like Operation Christmas Child and a remarkable ministry to get involved with. I'm going to share a current project that FAIR is involved with in just another second. We're also involved in Francophone ministry. We have a special arrangement with our churches in Quebec because Quebec is probably one of the greatest mission fields in all of the Americas, North, South, Central America. At 7.3 million French Canadians, only 0.8 of 1%, not even 1%, self-identify as an evangelical Christian. That's one of the lowest percentages amongst a people group in the entire world. We're sending missionaries to far-flung fields in countries that boast more Christians than are in Quebec. It remains our biggest mission field. And I'm happy to tell you or remind you that you're involved in that ministry through a partnership with a church plant in Quebec, and I thank you for that. We're also involved in chaplaincy ministry. 
Just four years ago, the fellowship chaplaincy ministry was only about 27 chaplains. And I just appointed two this last week, which takes us to about 105 chaplains across the country. In areas that you, sports chaplains, military chaplains. I was on a, a, a video conference with a, a colonel of the, in, the, in the Canadian Armed Forces asking us to send more of our chaplains because they find them to be some of the finest that they have. And so that was great to hear that we're sending the best from our churches to be chaplains in our military. Currently, the evangelical chaplains are the largest group in the military. It has grown exponentially as they have struggled to find other chaplains in our military. We have chaplains in truck stops. If you go to the Toronto airport, there's five chaplains there. Four of them are fellowship chaplains. Go and tell them you're the fellowship. You'll get a warm greeting. They're all fellowship guys. And so we are grateful for that because our chaplains are going in places that are often what we refer to as closed communities. Pastor Paul cannot walk into a police detachment and seek to be a pastor there. He's not allowed. He cannot proselytize. But a chaplain is invited in. Where we as churches are seeking to, in an innovative way, penetrate the community around us with the gospel, chaplains are being invited in by the community. So there is some really remarkable ministry. Just at the Toronto airport, I got the report for the end of the year, and 36 people were led to Christ at the airport last year. So pray for our chaplains. Find out more about that, that information. I've got just lots of material here, and um, I would love not to have to take the whole thing with me back to the office. So please, come by and see it. There's a, a brochure on Francophone ministry, a brochure on chaplaincy ministry, Here's something you might want to pick up. It's a reflections book. And in this booklet, I, I put a pile of them there. Each page represents one of our missionaries, Fellowship International Missionaries. Tells you a little bit about them, their family, their ministry. And what we're hoping is you'll have this beside your Bible during your devotions time, your family uh, worship time, and you'll be praying for our missionaries, some of which you support as a local church. So pick up one of those. Those are especially for our folks in our churches to be involved in that. Also, the, the most recent national magazine that we put out, Thrive, is uh, available. I've brought a pile of those. That tells you a little bit of what's going on in the fellowship across Canada and around the world. And also, this last year, our national council tasked me to inform our churches far more related to religious freedom and the issues that are at stake and I hope you're going to go vote tomorrow because that's one of the most important things we can be doing as Christians. As we seek to be public good, to bring the public good to our society, one of the best ways we can do is vote. Vote. And vote strategically. So there is some brochures that were produced this last year, a couple of them, and share some of the more recent things that we as evangelical Christians need to be concerned about as we become more and more marginalized and not in the sort of a public favor even amongst our own political institutions. And uh, so that's been written by pastors, uh, a charities lawyer. So pick it up. It's only about four or five pages, some information. And there's a couple additions to that. The last thing I want to share is our current FAIR appeal, Fellowship Aid and International Relief. It's a child sponsorship program. We have missionaries who are working, not exclusively, but in many cases, are primarily working with children on, in three different countries in five different projects. 
And so we have identified their needs and want to move it from a relief to a sustainable development project. And to do that, we need God's people in our churches to get behind these ministries. We're looking for 650 people to sponsor a child in Sri Lanka, Honduras, or Lebanon. And the information, I won't bore you with all the information up here, but please, yeah, the commitment is, is a monthly commitment of $35 for one year. And you can care for a child in an orphanage in Honduras. I was there last December. They asked me, I'm an artist, so they asked me to paint a big mural there with all the kids around me. You know what they asked me to paint? I couldn't believe it. A big, nasty T-Rex dinosaur breaking out of a wall. I thought it would scare these kids, but they loved it. And I had a couple kids help me as my little assistants, and little Gabriel became my sponsor child. You can do that with an orphanage of girls in Beirut who are being brought to our orphanage there. Uh, Willowdale Baptist sent out Kareem and Rita Anissa as our missionaries who are the executive director of that orphanage. These are Muslim girls who are coming to Christ, Syrian refugees. You can be involved in Sri Lanka, two different projects in, a, in an area uh, where it's predominantly Buddhist and an area that's predominantly Hindu on the east coast or on the south coast where uh, two buildings have been built at both sites, a building, for a school for children and a training center for adults teaching women to sew and start a cottage industry. And then a church planter in each of those communities who are seeking to start a church. You can be involved in all of that ministry by sponsoring a child. Please at least come by and find out that information. It's just a little brochure that tells you everything that you need to know. And then the uh, four different projects, there's a fact sheet for each of the different four uh, projects and there's even a little uh, what we call a photo booklet that shares the children that you can choose from in each of those different projects and that's at my table well that's more than enough but I hope that you'll pray about that if not today you'll concern you'll consider going online to our website at www.fellowship.ca and go take a look at that appeal and sponsor a child at $35 a month well let's prepare our hearts as we really are here to hear from the Lord, and we need to go to his word for that. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to come and to share your word amongst your people. Lord, you, you, you long to meet with them, and through the ministry of your spirit, you long to speak to each and every one of us. And I pray through my, my feeble effort, Father, that you'll speak through the words I share and speak clearly to your children, and that they might apply something today, this week, for your glory but also their great good. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if today is a typical day, 30,000 people came to Christ in China. If today is a typical day, 20,000 people came to Christ on the continent of Africa. If today is a typical day, 10,000 thousand people came to Christ on the continent of South America. And this next week, 1,000 churches will be planted in South America. It's really a remarkable story. The church is exponentially growing in a remarkable way throughout the world. In 1980, there was approximately uh, 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 70 or sorry, 180 evangelical mission agencies sending out 70,000 missionaries to the world. 180, 70,000. In 2011, that had grown to 
the 250 agencies sending out 250,000 missionaries in the world. South Korea has reported that they plan to send out 100,000 missionaries in the next 20 years. And the country of the Philippines and China are boasting similar numbers. These are remarkable days. We don't always hear these stories, but these are remarkable days. In the 100 years between 1900 and 2000, the continent of Africa boasted 10,000 Christians, or about 10% of the continent in 1900. 100 years later, 50% of the continent professed Christ as Savior and Lord in a continent of 360 million people. That's probably one of the largest religious, socio-economic shifts in all of human history on a continent. It's happened in the last 100, 120 years. Remarkable things are happening. So the question becomes, what's happening in Canada? That's a different story. It's not as exciting. In the 40 years between the census of 1971 and 2011, four decades, 49% of Canadians professed to be a Roman Catholic. In those four decades, it dropped to about 39%, and today it's approximately the same. Amongst mainline Protestant churches in those four decades, it dropped from 41% to 27%. And since 2011, it's been dropping like a rock. What's happening amongst the mainline churches is heartbreaking in Canada. Currently, the Presbyterian, the Anglican, the United Churches have 5,000 buildings that they're trying to sell. Emptied. They're becoming a real estate agency rather than a mission to reach Canadians for Christ. It's heartbreaking. In that same period of time, those who claim to be have no religious affiliation, they're often called the nuns, that's not N-U-N, but N-O-N-E-S, the nuns, having no religious affiliation, in that same period has grown from 4 to 24%. It is the fastest growing group in Canada. In 1986, 41% of people claimed to be in a religious service on a weekly basis. Today, 21%. One in five Canadians are in some sort of religious service, whether that be a church, uh, a synagogue, a temple. Only one in five in Canada. It, it, it's not a great news story here in Canada, although there are tremendous pockets of encouragement. I get to go right across the nation, at least to see in our little, our little clan called the Fellowship, and I see remarkable things happening. I mean, uh, I could tell you all kinds of cool stories, but I haven't got the time. So what's the solution? Well, we see the gospel penetration just exponentially growing elsewhere in Africa and, the, and Asia and the Pacific Rim and in other pockets throughout the world. And we don't see it necessarily in the Western world, in Europe and in, in North America. What is the solution as we see more and more of our neighbors, exponentially more and more of our neighbors being ushered off into a Christless eternity? What is the solution? I don't think it has to be complex. I think it is quite simple. What did Jesus say? They will know you by your love. It's love. Love still speaks. Love is still so powerful. 
It, it engages the mind, the heart. It, it builds bridges. It breaks down walls. It's love. But I would say it is a love that learns to stoop. And I'm going to explain that as we walk through this passage in 2 Samuel chapter 9. If you've got your Bibles or your smartphone, turn to 2 Samuel chapter 9. We're going to be talking this morning about grace. We're going to the Old Testament, not the New Testament, where often preachers go. We're going to go to the Old Testament to look at a story of grace. Who here has heard of the uh, author Samuel Clemens? What's his pen name? Don't be bashful. I've asked three questions and no one answers in this church. What's his pen name? Mark Twain. All right, someone gets the chocolate cupcake for the day. Mark Twain, who was probably one of the greatest authors of the 19th century, American author of the 19th century, who wrote Huckleberry Finn and some other wonderful, wonderful books that most, some of us who at least uh, had, took high school in Canada had to read in grade 10, whether you liked it or not. Mark Twain. Mark Twain was not necessarily a great friend of the church. He was quite jaded by it. He also lost a beloved daughter early in life, and that just, you know, broke his heart and caused him to question God and everything else. He said he did a, an experiment one time in which he had a cage with a door on, and he, he said, in my experiment, I placed a dog and a cat in the cage, and I shut the door. I, you know, they're, they're mortal enemies, dogs and cats, and he wanted to see how long it would be before they tear each other apart. Much to his surprise, over a short period of time, with a few adjustments, they seemed to get along. They seemed to get along. So he let the dog and the cat out of the cage, and he upped the ante, he said, on the experiment, and he took three of the most cantankerous barnyard animals. A big fat hog, put him in, or sort of rolled him in. A nasty goose, snapping goose, let him go in. And a head-butting billy goat, he put him in. He said, surely this hog, this billy goat, and this nasty goose are going to tear each other apart. He shut the door and he said again, with some period of time, with some adjustments, the three animals seemed to get along. So he said, I upped the ante. I opened the door and I let these three animals out. And with the door open, I threw in a Baptist, a Presbyterian, a Catholic, and a Lutheran. Shut the door. He said, in less than a minute, there wasn't a living thing left. Now in 30 plus years of ministry, vocational ministry, that's not been my experience. I've seen a lot of uh, partnership and care for one another, but that was not his experience. And by his probably uh, apocryphal little story, Mark Twain's story, he was trying to say something about the church. How at times we're not necessarily being known for our love. And any of us who have been in church life long enough, and I bet a few of you have been in church life long enough. You can recall times in the life of this church or in churches you've been a part of where you could say, that wasn't our finest hour. That wasn't my finest hour. I don't know if I would have been measuring up to what I say I believe. My behavior did not necessarily describe what I say I believe. And every church goes through those seasons, unfortunately, where we look back and say, oh boy, we weren't really doing well back then. Love. Grace. 
It, it is one of the most powerful tools we have to, con- uh, to infiltrate, to penetrate a community with the gospel of Jesus Christ. It still remains the most powerful tool available to break down walls and build bridges between communities that have different beliefs even. And we can broach those in a loving way and draw them to a saving, save, to a saving grace that we know and appreciate. I remember well when I went through a, 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 a parking lot attendant and I had, had my car in the parking lot and I went to pay my bill and he said, you see that car just leaving? I said, yeah, yeah, he paid your bill. I went, what? I had no idea who that person is. I, I just received something from someone that I don't deserve, that I've done nothing to be credited that kindness. He just did it to me just for the sake of doing it. And how did I respond? My mouth was wide open in awe. People still do things like that nowadays? A poor analogy, but this is grace. It is receiving something that I do not deserve. I have done nothing to credit my account. There's nothing I can do to receive God's grace. He chooses to give it to us anyway, every single day. This is a good news story. We just forget how good the good news is. And we go day to day in our very busy, busy days and forget that our job description as Christians is to be a missionary wherever we work and live, sharing the love of Christ in every possible way it'll be a million small things that you do before someone will say what makes you tick it's grace grace but so many people don't understand what the word grace is they just think it's a woman's name nowadays that's why most of the new translations are using not using the word grace but loving kindness it's a good translation it's my love my kindness that opens the gospel door for people to come and meet with Jesus. So the story we are going to look at here in, in, uh, in 2 Samuel chapter 9 is the story of King David and Mephibosheth. And uh, let me give you some of the background of what's going on here. If we can move to the next slide here. A, a, a huge battle has ensued, and you can read this elsewhere in Chronicles, where, where the king of the time, King Saul, and his son Jonathan, one of, the, of three sons, three princes, son Jonathan, are killed in battle in the valley of Jezreel. And it says there's Saul's son Jonathan, a son named Mephibosheth, who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. When the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled, but she, as she hurried away, she dropped him and he became crippled. That's a few chapters before chapter 9 and chapter 4. So here's the background. And I, I, I don't know why, you, know, you might be wondering, why do I have a cockroach? My first apartment with my wife was at Young and Shepherd. And it was back in the 80s, and there was just nothing available, so you took whatever you could get. I don't know how bad it is in GTA now, but it was terrible in the 80s. You took whatever you could get. And this wasn't exactly a really nice place. My wife is a nurse. This in no way reflects her cleanliness. I have to say that or I'm in big trouble. She's a clean freak. She's a, she's a nurse. But in that apartment, every time we went to turn on the light in the kitchen, I used to have to put my hand over her eyes and say, just give it a second, honey. And we would flip the switch, and these cockroaches would just go. 
It was disgusting. That's the picture of what's going on here. The extended family of King Saul have just heard that the king is dead and Prince Jonathan is dead and they know what happens to the extended family of the king. Exile, execution, imprisonment. They're taken off in every direction. And the nursemaid for young Mephibosheth, King, or Prince Jonathan's son, picks up the, the little boy in haste and somehow drops and has an accident. We're not told exactly what his disability is, but it somehow crippled him for life. We meet up with Mephibosheth later on in the scriptures. And one of the places we meet up with him is in chapter 9. And I want to read this passage because it's important that we get a full understanding of the context prior to diving into some of the verses here. In verse 1 we read of 2 Samuel chapter 9, One day David began wondering if anyone in King Saul was still alive, for he had promised Jonathan that he would show kindness to them. You see that word kindness in verse 1 there? That word kindness? He would show kindness for Jonathan's sake? That is the Hebrew word chassid. Chassid. And a, a Bible commentator of another generation Barnhouse said this, love that goes upward is worship, love that goes outward is service or evangelism, but love that stoops is grace. Now what did he mean by that? Well, the actual word, Hebrew word, that we translate into English, loving kindness, is actually literally translated in English as to stoop or to bend. This is the best we could come up with a Hebrew word to do grace, loving kindness. It really literally means to stoop or to bend. And God, in his infinite mercy, chose rather than to give us what we justly deserve, his wrath, we're at enmity with God, the scripture tells us. We're sinners. We're enemies. God instead chooses to stoop, to bend, and says, here you go, here's the abundant life. Here's my grace in its full entirety. That's loving kindness. And that's the kind of descriptor that we're supposed to be amplifying in our lives, modeling on a daily basis. That kind of loving kindness. Not judgmental. We're supposed to be loving people to the Savior, to the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's where that word kindness is found four times in this passage. I'm going to read right through it and you'll see them. Verse 2. He summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba, the king asked? Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. The king then asked him, is anyone alive, still alive from Saul's family? So if so, I want to show God's, there's the word, kindness again. That's chassid, chassid, God's kindness to them in any way I can. Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive, but he's crippled. Where is he, the king asked. In Lodabar, Ziba told him, at the, son, uh, at the home of Machir, son of Amiel. So David sent for him and brought him from Machir's home. His name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. And when he came to David, he bowed low in great fear and said, I am your servant. But David said, don't be afraid. I've asked you to come so that I can be kind, kind to you because of my vow to your father, Jonathan. I will give you all the land that once belonged to your grandfather, Saul, and you may live here with me at the at the palace. Mephibosheth fell to the ground before the king. Should the king show such 
Kindness to a dead dog like me, he exclaimed. Then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I've given your master's grandson everything that belongs to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him to produce food for his family, but Mephibosheth will live here at the palace with me. Ziba, who, has fif- who had 15 sons and 20 servants, replied, Yes, my lord, I will do all that you have commanded. And from that day on, Mephibosheth ate regularly with David as though he were one of his own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah, and from then on all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, moved to Jerusalem to live at the palace. So what's been going on here? David hears the news of Jonathan, who was his best friend, Prince Jonathan, and King Saul being killed in battle, and he mourns their loss. But he quickly takes command of the situation and becomes king. King of the land. And in David's time, this, this is what historians have called the United Kingdom. This is a glorious, this is a golden age for Israel. The, the, the kingdom expands from 6,000 square miles of land. In David's 10 years, 60,000 square. He doesn't lose in battle. He goes to battle against all the different nations. In chapter 8 of the same book, 2 Samuel chapter 8, verse 13, it talks about his fame and it talks about the, all the nations that he battles and wins, the Amalekites, the Amorites, the, uh, the Philistines. He, he, he's beaten them all and he has grown the land tenfold. This is a glorious age of united strength. And one evening, in verse 1, we're told, David is sitting in the palace, and he's sort of nostalgic, and he's kind of remembering the last decade or, so, or the last 20 years, actually. The last 20 years, he's now in the middle age himself, and on a quiet moment, he has a chronicler, probably reading from First or Second Chronicles, sharing some of what's been going on the last two decades, and he sort of stops him. He says, is there anyone left of the family of King Saul, because he knows, he, although he didn't do it, he knows what happens to the family of the previous king. Exiled, executed, not really, is anyone left? And he's told that there is. Prince Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth, is still alive. And he says, I want to see him because I want to extend to him, he says this in verse 1, I want to extend to him loving kindness. Now, theologians call this a type of Christ. This is an Old Testament story that's speaking a truth about what Christ has done on our behalf. And Jonathan, in a sense, acts as a type of Christ. I do not deserve God's grace, but I receive it. I do not deserve the grace and kindness of the king, King David, but Mephibosheth is going to get it anyway. In fact, he's going to be, later on it says, adopted into David's family. Again, a beautiful doctrinal allusion to the New Testament where we will be adopted as sons and daughters into the family of God. This is a fantastic story about grace planted in the Old Testament. So we move. Uh, he says, yes, one of Jonathan's son is still alive, but he is crippled living in Lodabar. You get the sense from Ziba, who had been a servant of King Saul, now the last 20 years has been serving King David, that he's not overly enamored by this individual. He doesn't come out and say it, but it's telegraphed between the lines of these verses. He's not like one of the guys we've had living in the palace, one of these great and mighty men who have gone on and battled and won battles for you, David. He's, he's a hermit who's been sort of hiding out in a place called Lodabar. 
Now, I went and looked in my Bible atlas where Lodabar is. And to get to Lodabar, you've got to go north of Israel into what is modern-day Syria and then take a kind of a right turn and go a little bit east-north, and you come to this area. It's, it's a tell today. Uh, archaeologists will go to tells, and they'll dig down, and they'll find you know, two and three and four different cities over thousands of years. And down there, you'll find Lodabar. It was a sanctuary city where people went to when they had done something wrong, they hightailed it to, to Lodabar. Because that was a sanctuary city where you could hide from your past. And I can tell you something. There are people in this room, and there are certainly people in this community, who are hiding from their past. They're hiding in their Lodabar. That's a Hebrew word, Lodabar. We just didn't translate it into the English Bible. We just kept the, the Hebrew word. But the Hebrew word literally means barren place. There are lots of people living in spiritual barrenness, trying to hide from the realities of even God's grace. And he's told that Mephibosheth, David is told that Mephibosheth has been hiding in Lodabar for now over two decades. He's been hiding there. Remember, he was a young boy when he was taken by his, his, his nursemaid. He's been hiding in Lodabar in spiritual barrenness for now two decades. If we can move to the next slide. So David sent for him. His name was Mephibosheth. He bowed low in great fear and said, I am your servant. And David said to him, don't be afraid. You see, this young man has been hiding from his savior for 20 years, thinking that his savior, his king, actually wanted to kill him. Actually wanted to give him, you know, uh, imprisonment or worse where all the while David just wanted to just show kindness. We're living in an age now when you live in Lodabar long enough, when you live in spiritual barrenness long enough in Canada today, you start to believe the lies they say about the Savior. We live in an ABC community, anything but Christianity. You seem to be always the ones that they sort of, you know, hit at, hit at, hit at. I don't know why all that is, but I see it as a re new reality as we become more and more marginalized in our own society. Orthodox Christianity is seen almost as a bad thing. You know, you're judgmental, you're homophobic, you're, I mean, they make it into a character I don't even, I don't even recognize. We're none of those things. But somehow, when you live in Lodabar long enough, you actually start to believe that your savior might in fact be your enemy when you live in Lodabar long enough. You see why love that stoops, that extends grace and mercy can break down a few walls, build a few bridges? Because they're not ready for that. They're ready for us to be hard-nosed and judgmental. And that's not how we're going to change the climate in Canada. It's going to be Love, a love that is giving, that bends and stoops and, and offers. In a million different ways, we're going to have to do that with our neighbors, with our work colleagues and our school friends, before they actually ever stop to say, okay, so who is this Jesus? I obviously got a wrong idea about him. It's going to take time, but it is possible. So he meets up with David, and the first thing David says, don't be afraid. If you take a look in your Gospels, the, the phrase that Jesus used more than 
often with people who first met was, don't be afraid. Because this is so foreign to people. Coming into a church, it's completely foreign to people. We have to sort of break down the barriers so that they'll come and check it out or check out our lives. So they won't be afraid in a sense, but to actually venture out and to, to know more. We go on. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, who is, your, who is your servant that you should show such kindness, there's that word again, to a dead dog like me? He finally seems to get it. That David is in fact his savior, not his enemy. And he's going to extend loving kindness to him, not judgment and imprisonment and death. He's going to get an abundant life from this king. He finally gets it. And he's drawn in. I remember reading a few years ago of a woman who was a, a Texas woman who was in a grocery store and she bought two bags of groceries. She walked out into the parking lot, came to her car. She, she put the two bags of groceries in the passenger seat. She took her keys and put them in the, in the ignition and started the car. And just as she was about to pull out, she adjusted her rear view mirror and noticed that there was a man in a pickup truck behind her. And he was very animated and yelling. He was just yelling at her and animated. His hands were moving. And he was yelling. And she got creeped out. And she put it in gear and she got out of that parking lot as fast as she could. Much to her horror, she noticed he was following her. She started weaving in and out of traffic. He kept pace with her, weaving in and out of traffic. She got onto the highway. She went faster than she ever would normally do. He kept pace with her. She raced off the, off the highway into her own housing development, raced into her own little area of houses. She came up to her house. She drove into her driveway. She just put the car in park, grabbed the keys, got, forgot about the groceries, and she ran to her house, you know, fumbling with her keys to try to get the house key to get in and to get the safety behind the front door and she noticed this pickup truck coming in behind her car this man getting out of the pickup truck while she's trying to get her key and her i gotta get away from this guy he gets out of his car and he comes he doesn't come running to her he he gets out of his pickup truck and he starts running to her car and she's going what's going on here she stops and she watches him open up the back door of her car and pounce on a man who had been lying in the back seat with a big butcher's knife and 20 minutes earlier, he had been saying in his pickup truck, Lady, get out of your car! There's a crazy man in the backseat. He's got a knife. He's going to kill you. Get out! And for 20 minutes, she's been hightailing it from her Savior. This is the world we live in. People are hightailing it from their Savior. Because some screwy way, because of the media elites or a bad experience in your church 30 years ago, I don't know what they're being taught in schools, whatever. They got crazy ideas about who Jesus is and what loving Christians can be. And God has made you an agent of his grace. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? To stem the percentages that are dropping like a rock in Canada. What are you going to do? You're the answer. Well, Jesus is the answer. He's just chosen to use you to be his messenger. Start acting like a missionary on your street. Think like a missionary. You've just moved into a new place. It's bereft, it's foreign to Christianity. That's Canada today. What would a missionary do? Get active. Get active. Think like a missionary. I'll tell you, Paul Sadler knows how to think like a missionary. 
Learn from him. Let's look at the last slide here. What happens? I have given you everything Mephibosheth ate regularly with David as though he were one of his own sons. Let me end with this. I'll take some liberties with the story. So David has had a wonderful reign of 20 years and at the expanse of the kingdom. Things are so good. He's just brought in one of his best friend's sons, Mephibosheth. He's now adopted him into his family. And, and, and imagine, imagine David meeting with his family. He has a large family each evening for an evening meal in the big banqueting room of his palace in Jerusalem. And he sits at the front of his big banqueting table that sits before us, this, this, this abundance. You know, Jesus said, I've come to give you abundant abundant life. David sits before his abundance and he waits for his family. And in comes his, his daughter Tamar, beautiful Tamar. And she comes, sits at her daddy's left side. Then in comes her half-brother Ammon, who would, you know, mess things up later. And he comes and sits beside his sister, his half-sister, Tamar. And then different uh, sons, and there's, he had over 20 sons, if you can believe that. And they're coming in groups of two and three and coming sitting around the banqueting hall. And in comes studious and wise young Solomon. He's just left his library, the study, where he studies every day. And he, he comes and he sits at the right hand of his father because he is the heir apparent. And in comes Absalom, you know, long, curly, black hair, kind of a guy's guy, Absalom. He comes in. You all know that he's going to make his father's life miserable later on in life. Yeah, yeah. One thing for guys with long black curly hair, make sure you duck when you're on a horse riding under a tree because th- bad things will happen to you. And he comes in and he comes in and he goes to the heir apparent, his brother Solomon, and gives him a get over and side settles in the chair and the Absalom sits there. And then comes king, uh, the king's general, General Joab's ramrod straight. He's an army man. He's lost. He's never lost in battle. He comes, he comes marching in. And he finds his seat. And then they wait. And they wait. They wait some more. They patiently wait. Then they hear it. Tap. Tap, tap, tap. Tap, tap, tap. And it's Mephibosheth coming down the marble hallway with his crutches tapping along. And he finally gets to the banqueting hall, finally gets to his seat, and he just exhausted. It's tough for him to get even to the banqueting table. He exhausted into the chair, and he looks at King David, and he says, I'm so sorry for being late again. And David looks at him and says, you never have to apologize. It's our great blessing to have you at our table, this table of abundance, every evening. Do you think Mephibosheth understood grace? Yeah, every evening he came to receive the abundance at dinner time. Well, we started with one of America's greatest authors of the 19th century, Mark Twain. Let's end with one of America's greatest authors, uh, authors of the 20th century. Many would say it was Ernest Hemingway, a man who knew the gospel. A man whose mother was a church-going lady, which was the head, the head choir master and organist, and she tried to bring her boy to church, tried to raise him in the faith, but he was headlong a rebel. His, his paternal grandfather had been the executive director of the YMCA in the 1890s in Chicago, and that was back when the YMCA was clearly an evangelical Christian organization. He knew the gospel, he was aware of it, but he rebelled and became who we've known him to be. Ernest Hemingway, but he told a story, a short story of a man who lived in Spain. He loved Spain. He'd fought in the Civil War in the 1930s. And his sons 
uh, one son was a good son and the other son was a rebel and he said, Dad, I want out. I'm going to Madrid and I, I, I want my inheritance. And he takes off to Madrid to live it up. Do you see where this story may have come from? Ernest's Sunday school days, Luke chapter 15. He lives it up in, in, in Madrid and finally the father is missing his son, his estranged son, so he reaches out to his son by putting a little advertisement in the most highly circulated newspaper in Madrid, a libra. And it's just a few words in the back pages of the newspaper. It said this, Paco. Paco is a common name apparently in Spain. It's similar to Bob or Jim or whatever. Paco, meet me Tuesday at noon, Hotel Montana. All is forgiven. Love, Papa. Tuesday, he makes his way to the Hotel Montana, this beautiful palatial hotel in the middle of Madrid, and a five-star expat type of hotel. has a beautiful courtyard surrounding the hotel. And the father turns the corner, looking at the hotel, looking at the courtyard in front of the hotel, he finds 800 young men, all waiting, all with the name Paco. Looking for grace. Looking for love. Looking for forgiveness. It is our greatest tool. It is without a doubt. We get all these methodologies and plans and models. We just need a love. But a love that learns to stoop. Not full of vim and vigor and judgment, but love and mercy. It will win the day. It's a slow way to do it. But in this skeptical society, it's the only thing that's going to work. Father, I just pray that your spirit is bringing to mind some people in the minds of your children this morning, a neighbor, a son or daughter, I don't know, a father, an uncle, a neighbor, someone at work, at school, someone that we need to reach out to this week for the love of Jesus Christ. Help us, Father. Help us to be creative and winsome in our approaches so they might see that the Savior is not their enemy. He wants to extend his mercy and grace. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.